Hawkins was indicted for feloniously stealing on the 7th of January 1795 a feather bed, value 20 shillings, a flock and feather bolster, value 10 pence, two woolen blankets, value 3 shillings, a linen sheet, value 2 shillings, a linen counterpane, value 12 pence, a looking glass in a walnut tree frame, value 4 shillings, a pair of tongs, value 6 pence, a brass candlestick, value 6 pence, a wooden pail, value 6 pence, and a tin kettle, value 4 pence. These were the goods of Thomas Norwood in a lodging room. Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. We know that during the Industrial Revolution, more and more people got more and more things. But how do you find out whether it was changing tastes and fashion that drove consumption, or if it was falling prices as goods were increasingly mass-produced? Especially if you're looking at the consumption of ordinary people because records are very few and far between. Well, what you do is you look at the court records. The records of the Old Bailey, which are now online, give a very good idea of what ordinary people owned because they tell us what goods ordinary people had stolen. Here's Scarlett Maguire talking to Dr Sarah Horrell about her research, Consumption Conundrums Unraveled. I'm Sarah Horrell uh, in the Faculty of Economics at the University of Cambridge and Fellow at Murray Edwards College and I'm an economic historian that works on Britain during the uh, late 18th, early 19th centuries, basically during the Industrial Revolution. And this particular work is... Is looking at consumption really from well, 1750 to 1820, so trying to look at aspects of consumption just preceding and during the Industrial Revolution and consumption of ordinary people. We've got a paper on this with um, Jane Humphreys and uh, Ken Smith, Consumption Consumption Conundrums Unraveled, uh, which is in the Economic History Review. It's available online and will come out in the print version sometime later in the year. So what were you trying to do? OK, we're, we're trying to look at consumption trends amongst ordinary people over the pre- period just preceding the Industrial Revolution and during the early years of the Industrial Revolution. And essentially because there's huge amounts of debate, not just about living standards, whether people did benefit or people in general benefited from from, uh, industrialisation, but also about the motivation. There's a hypothesis, the industrious revolution, that people were actually attracted by seeing novel goods coming in from overseas, uh, typically exotic oriental goods, things like tea, uh, coffee, nice china, and were willing to work, they couldn't make these things themselves, and so they needed money to buy them, and so were willing to work much harder, longer, do more market-orientated activities to purchase these goods. And that increased industriousness then fed through to industrialisation. So we wanted to try and unravel some of these strands of consumption um, to see whether, in fact, it was tastes, people desiring goods, or whether it was actually what you'd normally associate industrialisation with, the advent of of new machinery, steam engines, factory production, mass production of, of, say, cotton goods, which will cause price declines cheaper to make, and whether it's actually because it's more affordable that people were having some of these goods. So we want to try and unpick the actual motivations as well as just see what's there. And the problem with looking at ordinary people is that 
it's not documented. Yeah, so absolutely. Do do Ordinary this? people very rarely appear in the historical record. So what we did was actually looked at the Old Bailey records for um, it, it comes it's online. The Old Bailey records are online. Their proceedings. And they document all the cases that were tried at the Old Bailey. And we specifically look at uh, thefts through housebreaking and burglary. So we're actually capturing the, um, the goods that people owned that were taken from their houses and using these over time from 1750 to 1820 to try and see whether there's trends in what was owned. And what did you find out? A variety of things. Uh, all the hypotheses, to some extent, stand up. For instance, fashions are very definitely there in the data. If you take clothing, take an item like clothing, which actually represents about half of all the thefts that you see, then things like wigs, perukes, sleeves, individual sleeves, not parts of gowns, buckles, are items that actually stop being stolen, or stolen very frequently, at the time that they're also going out of fashion in the later 18th century. And you see new things coming in. You see things like uh, trousers, drawers, underwear, um, pelises, and umbrellas featuring as you move into the 19th century. So fashions are being picked up in what's stolen. Feeds wanted what was fashionable. It was presumably easy to, to sell on if it was fashionable. And very often, actually, these people took them for themselves. Quite often, thieves are actually apprehended because they themselves were wearing the goods they'd stolen. They stole things off the clothesline and off out of wardrobes or whatever. And what else did they steal? Uh, Anything and everything, actually, from houses. I mean, you have accounts where whole houses are stripped. Um, Some poor lady was locked in the basement of of her um, house while they thieves went through and stripped every single item from her shop. Another man reported how his house was absolutely ransacked, everything taken, including the window curtains. So thieves took everything, I mean, including beds and uh, mirrors, large heavy goods as well as the obvious the the smaller goods silverware valuables clothing money and linen uh, household linen of various sorts also was was very popular as an item of theft so we looked at the goods that are frequently taken that that were um, of interest in terms of being a novel likely to move down the social scale and try and map what was actually happening there so things like watches and silverware for instance, we find these increasingly being owned by people further down, or men actually, further down the social scale. Partly, presumably, driven by price declines because both watches and silverware get cheaper with new technology, silver plates invented, and so it becomes easier to have goods that look like silver that are obviously not quite as expensive. In terms of table linen, we find a slightly different trend here that people did take tablecloths, napkins, um, there was a good resale market from them. The people they took them from, again, as you go through time, is, is people further down the social scale, something you might put down to wanting to be more respectable, sort of symbol of respectability. But as they did this, as, as people further down the social scale got their linen, tablecloths and napkins, you find the ones taken from people further up the social scale were the more expensive type, which were the damask linen, the ones that are patterned, the, the um, sort of shadowy type pattern actually in the linen. So there's also elements of, sort of differentiation going on, I think, that whilst you can get ordinary people getting the goods that richer people have had over time, you can also see the rich themselves trying to actually um, differentiate what they own to still have an elite type of consumption. Stockings 
a quite an interesting example because stockings is an area where, of course, ubiquitous. Everyone had stockings in those days. Men and women wore them, you know, and they were taken very, very frequently and indeed prosecuted. I mean, it wasn't just big items that got prosecuted at the Old Bailey. It was also things like stockings, commonplace. Initially, there's a variety of types of stockings, but typically there's silk, which are worn by the wealthier elements, and there's woolen or worsted ones that are worn by the middling and poorer sorts, longer lasting, you know, more robust types of stockings. Then you get the advent of cotton stockings, and, and this is one of the areas where cotton really does start to emerge as being a big item. And everybody wants cotton stockings. So you see cotton stockings being purchased by the rich or stolen from the rich, and you also see it being taken from the middling sorts and the not the very poor, but the, the, the moderately sort of labouring type household. So sort of democratisation in terms of cotton stockings there. But then at the ends, at the, at the two extremes, you find it's only the very rich then that have silk stockings. And the ones they have are more expensive than they were previously. They're presumably better quality. They're marking out this elite consumption with, with better quality again. And at the other end, it's really only the, the, the relatively poor that are still wearing the worsted, the, the good, robust worsted stockings. Now, all this is fascinating, but actually the problem is that you're getting it from the Old Bailey, mm. which is in London. So everything, just to begin with, has a London bias. It does, yes. Um, not a problem for, for our purposes, because you'd expect London to be very much... As a metropolis, the centre of consumption, new exotic goods coming in there. Typically, I think a wealthier population who might be able to purchase those goods, access them in various ways. And fashion trends, not always, but a lot of the time, were moving from the metropolis out to the provinces, to the regions. So we'd hope to see any consumption trends that we find in London, essentially maybe later, but being replicated in other areas. So we wouldn't think it's particularly... Unrepresentative. And what other problems were there with this methodology? The main one is actually the court, the the cases that go to court at this time, because not just the Old Bailey, but all courts, because it's the responsibility of the victim to get hold of the perpetrator to take them to court. So you actually have to find the person that's stolen your clothes or your furniture or whatever else and get them before a magistrate, at which stage they can then be prosecuted or taken to court and, and prosecuted. So why why does this alter the findings? I mean, because you might think that it'd only be the wealthy and particularly uh, valuable goods that anyone would bother going to the effort to actually be able to try and track down a thief and get them into court. Actually, about half the prosecutions that are brought in the Old Bailey for, for thefts are by ordinary people. So it's not just the wealthy. There's certainly um, more lines and more description given to the, the wealthier cases. You know, the Archbishop of Canterbury's Palace gets robbed of its silverware. And of course, the old Bailey reports this at a reasonable depth, whereas an ordinary person's stocking's getting stolen, probably only you know, warrants a few lines. But they do get reported. And all sorts of people were, were capturing the thieves. I mean, as I mentioned before, you might actually see the person wearing the clothes they've taken from you. Quite often they were known. I mean, there might have been lodgers, there might have been someone that um, had been coveting your stuff from across the street, a servant, something like that. Other times they were just opportunistic, saw an open window, sort of dived in, decided to take what they could while you were at the pub or whatever. 
but were apprehended when they sort of tried to take them to pawnbrokers, for instance, to try and sort of trade them in. And people use things like fief takers, adverts in newspapers, things like that to try and track down their goods. And how detailed were the findings that you were looking at in the Old Bailey? It varies, of course, from case to case. But let me give you one example of a relatively ordinary one. And this is on the 26th of May 1790, the Old Bailey Court heard that, and I quote here, Elizabeth Asker was indicted for burglariously and feloniously breaking and entering the dwelling house of Thomas English about the hour of nine in the night on 18th of March last, and burglariously stealing therein three cotton gowns, value 14 shillings, four cotton petticoats, value 10 shillings, two black silk cloaks, value 10 shillings, and one child's dimity cloak, value two shillings, his property. And the accounts then go on to detail the various witnesses that appear. So Thomas English, who's from Seven Dials, Great Isle Street in Seven Dials, and his wife, basically stood there and said how they'd discharged Elizabeth Asker, who'd been their servant for three weeks that very evening, and how then she'd returned at night and removed their possessions. There was then evidence from two officers who took her into custody and two pawnbrokers from whom she'd tried to sell the, the clothes. And they all gave evidence and said this was the person who used the clothes and so on. And Elizabeth Asker was um, found guilty of stealing these things. And because of the time and the punishments that were meted out, she was sentenced to death by Mr Justice Ashurst. So yeah, not, not, a, not a very nice end for her. A horrible end. Mm, mm. So what, what are your findings? What, what do you feel that you found out about the working class and fashion? Well, a number of aspects, actually. One, that the industriousness argument, it is true that the working class did seem to own more goods as you go through time. They had more access to them. But it's quite late in the day <laughs> that they're owning quite a lot of the things that you'd associate with the novel goods that's meant to be promoting industriousness. So whilst we think, yes, that they, they, they may be working harder for whatever reason, but we're not certain that actually desire for these goods is what's driving it. Having said that, I mean, there are clearly fashions there. People did want to own desirable goods. They did want to uh, keep up with the, the Joneses, engage in new forms of consumption and had the goods to sort of show that. One of the areas that's most evident is domestic comfort that there's a clearly a move as you go through the 18th uh, towards the 19th century to improve housing or, or the contents of houses, the furnishings. And so people have things like window curtains, um, mirrors, uh, better lighting, things like that. And you find these things being taken from people's homes. And one of the ones we looked at was feather beds because beds previously had been basically flat beds, straw mattresses, and as you go through the 17th, 18th centuries, move towards feather beds, uh, feather filled mattresses. And we know from inventories that these were moving further through the classes over time, but they tend, the, the inventories of people's goods on death tend to really relate to the middling sorts, not to the, the people further down. So it was difficult to know whether they too shared in these more comfortable mattresses, you know, got better sleep. The data, and we do have a number of cases where feather mattresses were stolen, feather beds were stolen, show two things. Firstly, that they are going further down the social classes for the time period we're looking at, up to 1820. So clearly not everyone owned them previously, but it's becoming more frequent later. And secondly, that people were prepared to pay a lot more for better quality mattresses. You basically paid for the, the pounds of feathers in your mattress. 
and the more pounds of feathers, then the, the more you paid. And over time, people are paying more and more for their mattresses. They're wanting better quality, thicker mattresses, better sleep. So domestic comfort is a big feature for all classes and people willing to pay more to actually get that. The second thing, main thing we found is, is if we think about the uh, debate about living standards of the working class over the Industrial Revolution, these are London people, and yes, they do seem to be sharing in some of this sort of democratisation of consumption, some of the gains of industrialisation. But, as I just said, it's a wealthy area. It's, it's an area that maybe is not typical of everything that's going on further afield. And if you, there's a few, a very few accounts of what households own in sort of Derbyshire, a bit further north, in the 1840s. And these are skilled workers, cutlers, people like that. And you find their households, yeah, they may have some of these goods, but actually they don't have them all. And some of the things they have are very basic. I mean, that the person that's writing about and says, you know, they don't have decent clothing or decent table linen. In fact, it's worse than you'd find on the continent. And so it's unclear that people generally are sharing in these sort of gains that the working class really are. And a lot of the social commentary from the time talks about the um, the fact that families find it hard to feed themselves and to clothe their children, let alone go out and buy mirrors, rugs, nice feather mattresses and so on. So those are two findings. The third one, I suppose, is price. That industrialisation, of course, does bring with it a reduction in price of those goods that are more mass produced, cotton being the obvious one. But what we find in the goods that are stolen is, yes, cotton items are more and more frequently stolen, but actually people are willing to pay more for their cotton dress compared to a linen one or their cotton counterpane compared to the previous linen sort of quilt, uh, and indeed even their cotton stockings than they were for the, the older items. So they're actually paying a higher price for this cotton. Not, I think, necessarily because cotton itself is more expensive, but because it's very amenable to having nice, bright patterns printed on it. And so what you're paying for is actually the decorative element, that this is something that actually is, is desirable as well, not just because it's a useful functional item, but because it's colourful, decorative, and people are willing to pay higher prices for that. So that began quite some time ago. So, well, yes, yes. Well, if you're thinking that today we do this, yes. I mean, it's also true that people were doing it you know, a couple of centuries ago, maybe before that too, but then more more limited to the richer, um, wealthier classes. So I guess what, what we're finding is actually that consumption, if we, if we go back to the idea that consumption conundrums, we're trying to unravel these, is that a number of features come into what people are owning, what they're buying. Um, price, desirability, but also fashions, and sometimes differentiation, wanting to mark themselves out as different from other social groups. And depending on the commodity, depending what good it is, these different factors will come into play to different degrees. Mm-hmm.